Hi, and welcome to episode two of Lady Justice, Women of the Court, a podcast featuring four sitting women state Supreme Court justices discussing the judicial branch of government and their experiences on their state's highest court. On this episode, how did I become a Supreme Court justice? That's the question each of the women will be answering as they talk about their journey to the bench. The discussion features Justice Rhonda Wood of Arkansas, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of Michigan, Justice Eva Guzman of Texas, and Justice Beth Walker of West Virginia. Here's Justice Walker. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. We are thrilled with the response to our first episode, where we talked about our individual state constitutions and state constitutions in general. And for each podcast, we've decided that one of us will act as the host, so that's my job today. During the months ahead, we'll be talking about state courts, legal issues, and challenges we we face in each of our states, among other things, I'm sure. But if you have an idea for our podcast, something you'd like to discuss, or even a question you'd like us to answer, send us an email to podcasts at arcourts.gov. Or even better, you can tweet at any of us, on Twitter, of course, or send a message to our new podcast Twitter handle, which is at LadyJusticePodC. So for today's podcast, we're going to do some introductions. We especially want to talk about our individual career paths, hoping not only to say where we've been, but maybe even to inspire a young woman or a young lawyer out there who's thinking about a career as a judge or in the judiciary. I think you'll learn that there's not one single path to follow to become a state appellate judge, but lots of different ways to get there. Uh, For our first question, um, I'm gonna ask everybody to say whether you were the first person in your family to go to law school or whether you came from a long line of lawyers or something else. And where did you go to uh, school and law school? Um, How about we start in Arkansas with Rhonda? Thanks, Beth. Um, This is exciting for me because there's a little bit of personal background I don't know about all of you, so I'm curious to learn. Um, So I um, was the first person in my family to go to law school. Um, Growing up, I didn't know anyone who was an attorney. I think I always, it seemed like I always knew I wanted to go to law school. I was on the debate team in high school. And so I thought that being a lawyer meant I got a lifetime membership on the debate team. Um, And so that's part of sort of what I wanted to do. Um, I went to law school at the University of Arkansas Bowen School of Law. I was a non-traditional student um, and my children were in elementary school at the time. I think when you're non-traditional, the whole family sort of attends law school with you. Um, And so that was my experience. Um, So I'm curious, Bridget, what about you? I was actually the first person in my family to go to law school as well. Nobody went before me. Nobody's been since. Nobody seems very interested. Um, I don't know what that says about my example, but here we are. I went to NYU Law School. Um, I, 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 uh, received a Root Tilden um, scholarship, which paid my tuition. Um, it was a public interest scholarship, so that made my law school selection kind of easy. The one that the one that wasn't going to cost me tuition dollars. Um, not that living in New York was cheap. There was still some expense. Um, I did have a my godmother um, was a lawyer, and she was a legal aid lawyer in New York City, and she was a really super awesome godmother. She didn't have any kids of her own, so I think I got 
extra attention as, um, as her goddaughter. And um, I grew up in New Jersey and she would come, sometimes come pick me up and bring me into the city to stay with her um, for a couple of days and took me to work. And so I have no doubt that somewhere in my subconscious that had a, that had a important, that played an important role in, in how I thought about what I might do. But I didn't, but I, I wasn't that confident about law school until I, basically until I got there. I, there were, I, I was interested in a lot of things. I could have gone a lot of different directions. Well, and this is Eva. I, uh, I was the first in my family to go to law school, so we, we have some commonality there. I was raised by, by immigrant parents with elementary school educations, and, but we were a family of nine, so I think the dinner table well prepared me for these robust discussions because there was a lot of back and forth. And uh, even though they, they didn't have an, any formal education, my, I think my parents were just brilliant and ended up um, you know, raising seven kids who all went to college and, and went on to uh, professional degrees. But I was inspired, um, I'd never met a lawyer, I guess like some of you, but I was inspired I think by um, some of the TV shows and in learning a little bit about what, what lawyers do. And I just went for it. I, I, I decided that's what I was gonna do. And I went to law school at night. I don't recommend that. I do a lot of mentoring and I always don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But I did and, and it worked out um, well for me. I went to um, South Texas College of Law in Houston and uniquely it had a great uh, program uh, for, for night students. You could still graduate in three years even though you chose that non-traditional route. Um, and then years later, um, in 2011, Duke uh, University School of Law um, created an LLM program for judges. And I was part of that inaugural class. And I think they, they, they uh, our class was the class that they tried all of their <laughs> uh, uh, theories on into how do you educate judges, but it was a wonderful experience. There were um, judges from all over the country and, and from different places around the world and really got, it, I think it gave me an opportunity to hone my skills as, as an appellate judge. So that was fantastic, but um, yeah, first in my family. Well, this is so uh, interesting because Rhonda suggested this question uh, for the podcast and I didn't know what the answer was until I heard uh, the three of you talk but here's something we have in common um, all four of us are the first person in their families to go to law school um, which is as uh, many of you know not always the case uh, lots of times people see their parents or aunt and uncle or others uh, be lawyers um, but I grew up without knowing any lawyers um, and I have a very specific recollection of being in Mr. Hinton's social studies class in the seventh grade and announcing that I was going to become a lawyer. And um, I think it may have been spurred on by someone who said, you really like to argue. Um, that may or may not still be true, um, but it was uh, what I decided to do. And I pretty much stuck with it the whole way. Um, I went to law school at Ohio State. Um, 
and graduated in 1990, so just about 30 years ago this year, um, which doesn't seem possible that it's been that long. Um, but I definitely just sort of made my way to law school, not really knowing um, how you go about getting there. Uh, I know, like Eva said, and I'm sure all of us do a little mentoring and try to give people advice about uh, choosing law schools and and all of that. And I, I did not realize that advice was out there. I just sort of picked it. Uh, I was paying for my own law school. So Ohio State was the most economical uh, alternative that I had. Um, and I was, I was certainly glad I did it. And here's a fun fact um, about my law school class. I've mentioned uh, Judge Jeff Sutton in, in this podcast and in the prior one. He is actually a law school classmate of mine. So that's how I first met him. So Moving on to our next question, um, it's a fun fact that some of us are justices in states other than we where we grew up, as I just indicated, I guess, but I'll tell you, uh, I grew up in a little town in Ohio, uh, Huron, Ohio. It's very small on the shores of Lake Erie, lots of perch fishing up there. Um, I was actually born in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, but then my parents moved back to Ohio when I was very small. So all of my memories uh, are, being, uh, are of being um, a Buckeye. But once I went to law school and started interviewing uh, for jobs, I ultimately picked one in Charleston, West Virginia, of all things. I didn't know anyone in West Virginia. Uh, I didn't have any relatives in West Virginia. Um, but I interviewed with a couple of firms that I really thought in 1990, which you know is a while ago, had a real priority on women in leadership at their law firms. Um, and I thought, well, those sound like a good place to start being a lawyer, and that's why I picked it. And as it turns out, I never left West Virginia, and I am honored now to be uh, a West Virginian by choice, is what we call it, I guess. So for this question, where did you grow up? I'll ask everyone. And how did you get to where you are now from a geographical standpoint? Eva, do you want to start us off? Sure, I'm happy to start us off. Because, so I've lived in Texas most of my life, but I was born in Chicago. That is, um, I guess in the 50s, the uh, immigration patterns were more uh, with folks going up north. And so I was um, born there and we moved to Texas. I like to say as soon as we could, but <laughs> but we moved to Texas in the, in the I think in 1969. And, um, and my parents were just tired of the cold weather and they moved to Texas. And uh, the um, I, I went to the University of Houston undergrad. In fact, another fact about my family, Six out of seven of us, we uh, went to the University of Houston for our undergraduate degrees. We always like to say there's one black sheep in the family, or there was. But um, the school is near and dear to our heart. Um, I was working at a bank um, as an assistant vice president at the age of 20-something years old in the brokerage division, and I had a Series 7 license. And I don't know how I was selling securities at, you know, 20. Two, I think, but I was. And so um, that's about the time I decided to pursue the, the law degree. And as I mentioned earlier, um, South Texas College of Law just opened the doors and provided that opportunity and became that stepping stone to, to really not only change my life, but, you know, um, I have a sister who went on to law school, my daughter, you know, it's a lawyer. So it really changed and uh, the trajectory 
of our family's legacy and um, just a, an institution that's near and dear to my heart, but I've lived in Houston ever since. Well, this is Rhonda, and so um, I feel like I've lived all over the country. I was born in Ottumwa, Iowa, and then I grew up in a small town um, in Onalaska, Wisconsin, which is a town of about 12,000, and that's where I grew up and graduated high school. From there, I left and went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I ended up not staying and transferring several times, and I actually ended up um, eventually at UTEP in El Paso, Eva. So um, I was in Texas and that's where I ended up with my husband um, who was teaching at a residency program in Texas um, in the military. And then he wanted to move back to Arkansas where he was from. And so we moved to Conway, Arkansas and um, by then we had children and I finished college and graduated at Hendricks College. And that's where I said I went on to um, law school. So Arkansas is like a warmer version of Wisconsin. Um, best decision of, one of the best decisions of my life is living in Arkansas. The people are wonderful um, and they've accepted this Yankee um, with full arms and been wonderful to me. Well, I, this is Bridget, I, I grew up in um, New Jersey, so we have another thing in common. We all sort of were born somewhere besides where we um, now settled. We didn't even know we had all these things in common, but I was um, raised in New Jersey. I was actually born in Washington, D.C., but my parents moved to New Jersey when I was one. My siblings were born in New Jersey, central Jersey. I had really big hair in high school. Um, uh, and uh, my father had a store at the mall and I worked at the mall with big hair. So I'm literally the stereotype in your mind. That was me. Um, and I started my practice in New York City and um, then went from being a public defender to um, a, a teaching fellowship at the Yale Law School. That was my first job as a faculty member. Um, and from there, I, I moved to Ann Arbor to um, join the University of Michigan Law School faculty. When I did that, it was 1998, and I sort of assumed I'd be in Michigan maybe five years. That's usually how long it takes to get tenure. And then I'd probably move back to the coasts because my family was um, uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast. And I sort of thought I'd end up, you know, close to my family. But uh, as I said, that was 1998. I think the calendar says 2020. And here I am 22 years later. Um, uh, not only happily in Michigan, but you could basically put me in those pure Michigan commercials. I'd be fully, fully happy if nobody finds out how awesome Michigan is because um, it's about the most beautiful place in the world. Well, your social media certainly um, speaks well for Michigan and probably should be included in the pure Michigan uh, commercials. Uh, my immediate, my entire immediate family now lives in Michigan, so I actually get to visit uh, and when I go to Michigan, I try to see Bridget because uh, she's not very far away from where my family is. So that's kind of cool, too. So for our next question, um, sometimes students ask me, and I'm sure they ask all of you, what kind of career should I follow? You know, what should I, I want to be a judge. You know, it's, I love what you do. How do I get there? Um, and I think, as you'll learn in a minute, um, all of us, of course, went to college, which have to do to go to law school and then we went to law school which you have to do to become a lawyer um, but we all we heard a little bit about what some of us have done professionally uh, before we became judges but let's talk a little bit more about that 
and uh, Rhonda, lead us off. All right, well, um, and I'm gonna digress by saying, Bridget, I think that I could compete with your big hair competition if you wanna have that competition. So I had the 80s big hair um, as well, so. I think we could we do could, a future podcast on 80s big hair, maybe. Or at least we, we might have to post that at some point. We time. may have to do a Twitter competition. I don't know if even Beth had big hair, but um, I, I think there's a picture of me from like my first day of law school that um, it's, it's awful. Um, I, I think I had 80s hair in the 90s. I didn't realize that like the 90s had happened. But anyway, um, I um, will say that I initially was in private practice. And I think we're finding that a lot of us had paths that were like crossed and intersected. But um, I, my primary focus was healthcare when I was in practice. Um, when I graduated law school was right when HIPAA was really going into effect and nobody really knew how all the changes of the um, healthcare um, insured patient portability and accountability act was going to affect um, physicians and hospitals. And so there was sort of this void and I sort of jumped in to try to fill it. And so that was my practice area. And from there that led to an opportunity to start adjunct teaching at the law school in healthcare law because we needed to train lawyers in that area. And I ended up as a liking teaching and having four children um, at home. And so I ended up moving into um, an assistant dean position at the law school in Little Rock. And I did that for five years. And then from there, I ended up going into the trial bench. I served six years on the trial court two years on our Intermediate Court of Appeals, and then now I'm completing our sixth year um, on the Supreme Court in Arkansas. Um, I was largely a law professor before I came to the bench. Um, although, as I said in my last response, I started as a public defender in New York City. I, I, I um, uh, first as a trial level public defender, and then I did a year and a half as an appellate um, defender. So I. Uh, tried a bunch of cases, argued a bunch of, bunch of cases to appellate courts, um, and then made a transition to law school teaching, but primarily clinical teaching. Um, and at the University of Michigan Law School, which was my full-time academic home for 15 years, I was also the associate dean for clinical affairs. Um, and uh, I still teach there. I teach at usually just one course a year, one course in the winter semester, except last year when somehow I agreed to teach two courses and a mini seminar, and I will never do that again. Um, but I like, I, I, I really um, like to stay connected to the law school. I love the students. Um, I love the library. It's far superior to the library I have in my court. Um, and um, I really like my colleagues. So it's still kind of an important part of my professional life. And, and this is Eva. Um, I've already mentioned um, I um, was a banker as a, as a very young woman. And then after law school, I went to work for a small firm in Houston and um, we were a litigation firm. So, uh, you know, I always think about things from the perspective of being a small firm lawyer, discovery disputes, continuances. Um, you know, sort of the, these motions that get filed 
uh, by the big firms when, when you dare <laughs> to sue, you know, when they're clients. And so that perspective, I think, has um, stayed with me throughout my, my tenure. I began my judicial career in 1999 when uh, President Bush was governor of Texas and um, a judge passed away on the district bench and um, I hadn't really thought seriously about whether there was a path for me um, on the bench because in Texas, judges are elected and I wasn't particularly political at all. I'd never run for anything, not school board, not anything. I didn't come from a family of politicians. And so, but I was really encouraged by, by mentors on the bench and off the bench to take a chance and apply for the position. So I applied on a Wednesday and I was interviewed that Friday. I remember being in a mediation and I said to the mediator, I have to leave. I've got to go take this to FedEx. This is a long time ago. So I took it to FedEx. They called me. I went up to Austin on Friday. I interviewed and then I was appointed 11 days later. And when the um, gentleman interviewing me asked, well, you're really young. Are you going to stay on this district court bench for 20 years? And I said, well, no. I mean, someday I'd like to be on the Supreme Court. That was probably a bad answer, but they appointed me anyway. Um, and so, but I did. I, I was very intentional in uh, my desire then once I had my, my, my foot in the door and my desire to serve on, on the state's highest civil court. So um, in 2001, I um, uh, was giving a speech and our governor was there and then um, his people came up to me and said, I was really impressed with your, your remarks and you know, you should think about moving up. Of course, I love my job, but well, if the governor needs me, if Texas needs me in a different position, I'd absolutely be, you know, be willing to serve. And so I was appointed to the Court of Appeals in Houston, the Intermediate Court, um, and served there for 10 years be, before I, I was appointed to the Supreme Court of Texas. I've been on the ballot six or seven times, always with opponents. And um, though we're appointed in Texas initially, we end up having to run for that seat generally speaking, at the next general election. So that's been a lot of fun. But that's a, a little bit about my path to the bench. Well, um, I'm finding more things that I have in common with my friends. Um, as I mentioned, I, I came to West Virginia and joined a law firm. Uh, it was a regional firm. And I spent 22 years there. Um, that I practiced in labor, labor and employment law, which I kind of got into after trying a couple of things, which you have sometimes the luxury to do at a larger firm. Um, I uh, worked with employer clients, so I was kind of a defense employment lawyer, which meant that I tried cases uh, and dealt with other kinds of employment claims. But I also worked with employers um, giving what you could call compliance advice helping them, as I like to tell them, uh, I would like them to stay out of court in the first place if we could. Um, so that was my job. And after uh, over 20 years doing that, I was recruited to join um, an in-house group of lawyers representing uh, the hospitals that are now known as WVU Medicine. It was WVU Health System at that time, West Virginia's uh, sort of flagship health system. And I did the HR representation. I worked with our human resources people at those at the various hospitals, and I did that for uh, about five years. 
uh, right up until I uh, ran for office and took just uh, took office in January of 2017. So I went from being a regular law firm lawyer to an in-house lawyer to being a justice, um, which you know we all have a kind of different way of doing this, but. Now I want to talk a little bit more in, um, about how we got to be in our current jobs. And I'll preface it with this, of course, everyone knows um, from current events how federal judges uh, are appointed to their positions and serve in lifetime appointments uh, with advice and consent of the US Senate. But state judges uh, are selected or appointed or elected in all different ways. And we'll probably have a future podcast about how that happens and what's the best way for it to happen uh, or what combination. But we'll leave that for the future. Uh, and for today, I'll ask everyone how you came to be a justice. What was the process? Uh, Chief Justice McCormick, why don't you start? Yeah, in Michigan, um we run on a nonpartisan ballot, the Supreme Court just, justices, as well as all the judges, I should say. But for uh, the Supreme Court justices, we are nominated by parties. So the first um, piece of the puzzle is to get the party's nomination. Um, and once you do that, you're placed on the nonpartisan section of the ballot, and then um, you appear with anyone else who's been nominated by a party. So there may be, you know, um, a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian. Sometimes there's a natural law party candidate. Sometimes there's a taxpayer party candidate. Uh, sometimes there's a Green Party candidate. Um, it can be a long list, um, but none of those party affiliations present themselves on the ballot. So you you um, you run along with everybody else, and it it turns into kind of a name recognition race um, at that point. Um, it's an interesting process because a lot of people uh, drop off. A lot of people who vote the top of the ticket just don't cast a ballot um, in the judicial races. And it, it may well be because by the time they get there, they realize they don't know who's who. And so they don't know which candidate reflects their values or which candidate they think would do the best job. So they think it's safer uh, just not to vote. Um, although sometimes it's, there's confusion. People think by voting straight party ticket, which is something you can do in Michigan, they may think they voted for the judicial candidates that um, were nominated by the party they voted for in that straight ticket section. But for whatever reason, uh, there are a lot of fewer votes cast in, in the Supreme Court race than in the, um, than in the top of the ticket. I, I, like Eva, I had no experience in politics whatsoever, didn't have anyone, didn't really, uh, wasn't exactly sure what I was getting into the first time I ran. There was an open seat on the Michigan Supreme Court. I don't, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who would have the stomach for running against an incumbent, especially because I practiced in that court. My students and I in the clinical programs had cases um, in the Michigan Supreme Court and it would, would not have interested me whatsoever to take on an incumbent. Um, but because there was an open seat, um, I had this naive idea that I might be able to have something uh, important to contribute. Uh, and so I went about trying to figure out how to run for state, statewide office and what a learning curve it was. I, in retrospect, I think if I had known in advance what was involved, I might never have done it. So maybe it was uh, for the better that I didn't, um, which is something I always tell folks that I'm mentoring. Don't think too hard about everything. Be, be willing to kind of jump in and, and try some things um, because you can talk yourself out of everything if you overthink it. Eva, how about you? Well, I, I mentioned earlier uh, being appointed to, to the Supreme Court as appointed by uh, then Governor Rick Perry. Um, 
had to run for office right away, got a primary opponent the, the day after I was appointed and um, um, just uh, went about the business of running. State Texas is a state of 27 million people were elected on partisan ballots. Um, I really, uh, you know, there's a saying, all politics is local. So, so for me, it was getting out to as many places as I could and getting as many supporters in each city so that if I couldn't go to a particular event, I had folks that showed up and said, you know, I know Eva Guzman and she would make a great judge and here's her little push card. Um, and I, I won that, um, handily won the, the, the primary in the general, but in 2016, when I ran again, I um, was running against the same um, uh, notion that if you're running as a Latina, as a Hispanic, and in a partisan ballot, that maybe the votes won't get there, but I, I had the, the great um, honor of becoming the highest vote getter in the history of the state of Texas for any race, anywhere. <laughs> And it's a, a little bit over 4.8 million votes. And, and I, I think what's interesting about that for me is not these bragging rights, but, but the idea that we should not be guided by, by the negative voices. Well, they're not going to vote for you because you're a Latina or good luck with your struggle because, you know, your last name is Guzman and not Smith. It, it really highlighted um, that, that um, when you... Um, decide to do something, you give it, you know, 150% and you're not held back by detractors that you can really overcome these odds. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that um, for that reason. Thanks, Beth. So this is Rhonda. Um, justices in Arkansas and all judges are elected um, and the justices are elected for eight year terms. Um, we're all nonpartisan, and we are elected in the primary season. So during the primary season, um, we are elected and we are on both party ballots, or you can ask for a nonpartisan ballot. Um, so it would be um, in um, March, typically, that or, or May, our primary switches, depending if it's a presidential year. Um, just... You can get an appointment. Um, I did get an appointment to our trial bench. If a judge is ill or um, retires early, you cannot run for that seat if you're appointed. So I was appointed for two, a two-year term, and then I had to run for a different seat, and I did that. I had a three-way race. I won that um, um, without a runoff. And then I ran for the Court of Appeals against an incumbent, Bridget, who had been there 12 years. Um, I lost. Um, by less than 1%, and, um, but that spurred me on, and I turned around and ran again the next year, um, two years later, um, and won by a large margin. Um, by then, it was for an open seat. On, that was our Intermediate Court of Appeals. And then two years later, there was an open seat on our Supreme Court, and I ran for that. And it's been, I think, several decades now that that was the first time an open seat has been uncontested. So I was, I ran uncontested. Um, the way it works in Arkansas is judges announce one year before the vote. That's as soon as you can announce that you're running. Um, and then the filing period is only about, um, usually I think it's about 10 weeks before or 12 weeks before the ballot. It's really close. Um, so you don't really know if you have an opponent 
unless they announce. Um, someone could come in at the last minute and file. So um, I ran like I had an opponent. They say you run scared uh, or unopposed. And <laughs> um, so I ran, I announced in um, then May for the Supreme Court and ran like I had an opponent. So I did the chili tasting, you know, competitions. I judged beauty pageants. Um, I went out and met people. You're in parades. You do whatever you need to do. You speak to every local bar association and you meet to all the voters and then um, you know, like I said, I was blessed that no one ended up filing against me, but I think it's because I was on the ballot every year for, you know, like a 10 year period. Um, so I didn't know what to do the first year that I wasn't on the ballot. I didn't know what you do during election cycle. Eva probably feels that way too. Um, but now I've, you know, been six years not on the ballot and it's a wonderful feeling. So. So we have some seasoned uh, or veteran election folks here. Wow, and, and you do learn a lot in elections. Um, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about how the process works. Um, justices in West Virginia, uh, we are a single appellate court state, so we don't have an intermediate court. We have five justices on our Supreme Court and we're elected for 12 year terms, although that can occasionally get adjusted if someone retires or becomes ill and someone needs to be appointed and then runs for an unexpired term. There's a lot of jostling, but I've run twice. The first time was in 2008, and I will say it's un it was under the old system of partisan elections where there were actually Republicans and Democrats, and we ran in a primary and then ran in the general, um, and I ran against um, two candidates for, so there were three candidates for two seats on the court in the fall of 2008. And I came really, really close as a first time statewide candidate. I missed it by six tenths of 1%. And after that, I just kind of went back to being a lawyer. Um, uh, here's another pro tip for those of you who are thinking about running. Um, you might try something smaller than a statewide race the first time because a statewide race is a pretty big uh, undertaking. But nonetheless, I went back to practicing law and then our legislature changed the way the judges are elected and changed it from a partisan race to a nonpartisan race. And it really interested me in running again after I said I never would because I think it's really important um, that judges you know, we talk about civility and being able to have conversations with folks you disagree with. And when you make it a nonpartisan race, I think you promote that idea. Now it is trickier. We run like in Arkansas, we run in the primary season on the nonpartisan ballot. But I did that in May of 2016 and I was running for one seat on the court against four other candidates, all men and one uh, was the incumbent. And as opposed to 2018 or 20, 2008, when it was really close, I won by a large margin. Uh, I was very fortunate and worked really hard. Um, so I beat the four gentlemen uh, handily and went on to take office in January 2017. So I uh, am and always will be the first justice elected in a nonpartisan election. Uh, so that's a fun, um, a fun thing too. And I'm, I'm very pleased that we are nonpartisan. I think it takes a while for everybody to get used to removing the labels, but I think it's been a really good thing. So for our last few questions, I'm gonna do, I'll call it a lightning round, but ask sort of questions that don't take a long, a long time to answer. 
And so we'll have four of these quick questions and we're gonna have, uh, I'm gonna ask everybody to answer in alphabetical order by state. So we'll go Arkansas, Michigan, Texas, and then I'll answer. So that'll be uh, Rhonda, Bridget, Eva, and then me. So for our first lightning round question, this one is inspired by Eva's debut on Twitter recently with a cooking video. It was just an excerpt from what I hope is gonna be a series maybe of cooking videos with, because I wanna learn how to cook with you. But for this question, um, what is your favorite food to eat or to prepare? Rhonda. Um, so for me, it's lasagna. I make homemade pasta, so it takes like a full day to do this. But so any of you, if you come to Arkansas, I will make you my homemade lasagna. Bridget. I'm terrible at preparing food. Um, and I'm basically an omnivore. There's no food I don't like, but I have a real sweet tooth and chocolate is, is, my, is my real soft spot. Eva? So this, this is Eva. I, um, so my nephews, my nickname is Mama Rice. <laughs> so I love cooking Mexican food, whether it's carne guisada, chile rellenos, rice, but I don't do dishes. My husband has done all the dishes for, you know, the 34 years we've been married, but I don't mind getting dishes dirty <laughs> by cooking. Well, um, my favorite food is pizza, any kind, anywhere, any style, more toppings the better is how I will answer that. So that's question one. Question two, um, will, as I'm sure we'll talk about in future episodes, we do a lot of writing in our jobs. Um, when you're on an appellate court, um, you're, you're not really listening to witnesses or have a jury in the courtroom. You are listening, uh, you are listening to arguments, reading briefs, and producing a written opinion. So we all, I can speak for all of us to say that we try really hard to be good writers, and in that way, we're a little bit of geeks when it comes to writing. So I have to know with my writing geek hat firmly on my head, do you prefer one space or two spaces following a period at the end of a sentence? Rhonda. I think it's refreshing because you're going to let people know that we don't get along now. So we <laughs> act like we all agree on everything, but now we don't. One space, one space, one space. Bridget. I mean... One has to be, I'm sorry. I'm, I mean, what are you, a communist, Beth? <laughs> Eva. <laughs> Two spaces, I, I just, just makes me much more clear. <laughs> Two spaces. Two spaces. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, Texas, for, for chiming in on the side of rational hashtag team two space. How can you possibly smash those sentences together? They get all crowded. You can barely read them two spaces here. I think right, it's two so. spaces in Texas because they have to make everything bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll work on you people uh, and your, in your one spaceness. Okay. Question three has two parts. First, um, in the year that you started practicing law, how many women were on the court where you now sit? And right now, how many women are on that court? Rhonda? So in Arkansas, the, my first year of law school was the year that the first justice, female justice, was elected to the Supreme Court of Arkansas. That was Justice Annabel Ember Tuck. Um, and so there was only one. When I took office in 2015 to the Supreme Court, um, I then changed it to a majority female. So Arkansas, four of the seven justices are female. They've been that way since 2015. 
after the most recent election, it will maintain that till at least 2022, and we'll see how that election turns out. In Michigan, we in 1991, when I started practicing, there were two um, women serving on the court. And right now, in 2020, there are three. So um, I, I, my understanding is that at one point, there were four. So three is not the highest number, but it's where we are now. So this is Eva. In 1989, when I started practicing, there were no women on the Supreme Court of Texas. The uh, Chief Justice now, Nathan Heck, actually signed my law license, so kind of cool. Uh, the first woman on the Texas Supreme Court was appointed in 1982, but um, was not on the bench when I got appointed. There are now three women on the court as of 2019, and in the court's history, there have only been three women on the court at the same time, um, twice, uh, the current period being, being the second. Of course, we had that 1925 panel that I'll talk about on another episode. Ooh, that's a good that's a good teaser for a future uh, episode. When I started practicing law in 1990, there was one woman on the West Virginia Supreme Court, Justice Margaret Workman, who was actually the first woman elected to statewide office in West Virginia. Um, when I started in 2017, I became like Rhonda. I made the court a majority of women, and served with Justice Workman, who had uh, been reelected had gone on the court for quite a while, then got back on the court. Um, and Justice Raman Davis, then that changed. And right now, um, we have two women on the court. And at the end of this year, Justice Margaret Workman will retire, and I will be the only woman uh, on the court on January 1. So for our last question uh, in the lightning round, let's do a quick wrap up about where we are in terms of COVID-19. We're recording this at the end of September of 2020 and we're all adjusting to um, the new reality that COVID-19 presents. Um, so let me ask this, is your court currently hearing cases? And if you are, is it in person or on Zoom or another platform? Uh, and do you anticipate it'll change by the end of the year? Um, this is Bridget. I'm hopping in. Uh, I'm stepping on Rhonda's toes. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this one first. Um, in Michigan, we are scheduled to hear our first in-person arguments um, in in October since last March. We've been hearing it by Zoom since then. We heard oral arguments a couple of weeks ago by Zoom, and it's worked out quite well. Uh, but we're hoping to pull off our October case call in person with lots of precautions. We're spread out. We're not all going to be on the bench, a couple of us are gonna be down below and we're only letting the lawyers in who are arguing um, as they argue and then we're rotating folks through. So hopefully we'll be able to do it safely and whether we can keep doing it, I guess we'll see. We hope so, but um, we, we're gonna make those decisions uh, each month as we have the, have the information we need to, to, to know whether we can do it safely. This is Rhonda. In Arkansas, we are still doing oral arguments through Zoom. We will continue that through the end of October, and we're just sort of assessing from there. This is Eva. Um, Texas is still holding arguments via Zoom. We have one tomorrow. Well, as we're recording, we're, we have one um, in October, then we'll have some later in October via Zoom, and we'll reevaluate um, after the October settings. 
And in West Virginia, actually, we uh, started hearing cases in September in person in our courtroom uh, with plexiglass and all of the precautions. Um, we set a time schedule for the first time for our oral arguments, so lawyers arrive as it's time for them to argue as opposed to all arriving when our session begins. Um, and it, and it seems to be working well. And so long as things don't change too much in West Virginia, I think we'll probably uh, continue this for the foreseeable future. We hope so. Uh, we, we, I kind of like being live, um, but you have to be careful about it. And with that, that concludes our lightning round and the second episode of our Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. For more information about our podcast, visit our website, ladyjusticepod.com, where you can listen to past episodes, find links to our social media, and give feedback or suggest a show topic. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. The views expressed by the justices are theirs alone and not necessarily the views of their respective courts. This podcast is a production of the Arkansas Supreme Court's Public Education Program.